Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. This episode is brought to you by Gilt. So when it comes to building wealth, taxes are such a big part of the strategy. And even if you're already filed, being proactive about this year to lower your future liability is so important. Gelt actually provides a proactive approach to tax strategy, combining innovative technology and expert CPAs by creating personalized tax strategies for your unique financial needs of multiple revenue streams, M&As, restricted stocks, various investments and more. You can keep your hard-earned money. Our, their proprietary platform ultimately gives you the full transparency of your tax management and direct communication with your CPA to reach your financial goals and grow for your wealth faster. So again, you know, if you're interested in this, go to joingelt.com. Uh, and they are actually on the show notes that I'm going to be posting a very special offer for you all that you can actually enjoy. So again, you know, join Gelt. Com. All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a really exciting founder. You know, like uh, we love to talk about building, scaling, financing, and all of that good stuff. So again, you know, the uh, episode today is going to be very inspiring. We're going to be listening, you know, about, you know, the good side of things, you know, about perhaps, you know, like providing uh, companies with money and and, you know, the fintech side of things and the some of the restrictions, you know, also growing up, you know, there in Europe uh, and, uh, and again, you know, like everything that has led him to really build what he is doing right now, which is a rocket ship. So without further ado, Federico Travella, welcome to the show. Thank you, Alejandro. Happy to be here today. So Federico, walk, give us a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up in a middle class family? in Belgium. I indeed grew up in Belgium in a, in a small town uh, called Bruges, which is pretty much this open air museum and rightfully a prominent UNESCO World Heritage Site. And it's also dubbed the Venice of the North. It receives 100 times more tourists than the amount of people actually living there. And as you can imagine, it's the polar opposite of a tech hub, say like San Francisco. And so growing up, consequently, I didn't really know many entrepreneurs there, let alone tech or, or internet businesses and entrepreneurs. And so not much inspiration. And I think we all know we need inspiration and, and role models. And so success in, in, in my family and the families um, around me really meant being a strong student, um, doing to study a great master's at a top university and securing a stable job. And it's in many ways that quintessential middle-class recipe we know for success in Europe. And while I don't really know if it's future-proof, it is what it is today. And so growing up there, I think there's also a lot of, of risk aversion. For instance, um, just to name one example, there was this recurrent story at family dinners about failure. Uh, two uncles tried to build some company. They both failed. And this came up over and over again. And I think that risk aversion is a very strong impediment to entrepreneurship. Um, perhaps this is because the worst that really can happen to you or to, to a middle-class family is sliding down 
into that lower class. And once again, there's nothing really wrong with this mold, but it becomes what I would call a little bit the middle class trap. And if you add to that first job out of uni a mortgage, you really much uh, kill entrepreneurship. And so I do think that's the mold that works for most people. It's, a, it's this middle class um, um, path that forces a certain discipline, provides stability. But I also now in hindsight realize how much luggage we all carry as, as, as founders and entrepreneurs because of our upbringing or our childhoods. And this can really limit us in life. And sometimes we need to let go of that luggage in order to succeed and, and become successful. Now, one thing that uh, I find really interesting in your journey is how you started to really be present to strategy and how you like strategy. And, you know, from, from something so so random, like magic cards. I mean, I, I played magic cards, too. So uh, so what, what, what kind of exposure did that give you or what triggering points that perhaps, you know, served you well later? So my interest in entrepreneurship, as, as it wasn't really inspired, um, let's say, by, by, by my upbringing, was, was really, it was a gradual pivot. Um, and the spark was indeed trading card games. First, uh, there was, uh, you know, Pokemon, and then eventually uh, Magic the Gathering, which was, was the more serious version, let's say, of, of, of Pokemon. As so at elementary schools, I, I, I realized that, um, you know, kids were starting to play Pokemon, and, and they wanted to be up to date about the latest Pokemon news. They wanted to know about their Charizard, their Pikachu, and um, I was lucky enough to have access to, to a computer with a dial-up internet back then, a printer. And so I started this, selling this, this um, weekly paper-based uh, newsletter for what is today probably like 50 euro cents or so. And you could also place orders for cars, which you know, I would know where to find by trading. And that was very much the upsell, if, if, if you like to, to visualize it as, as a pitch deck. And so essentially, I was taking other kids' lunch money. And to no surprise, the school shut down my little business, and I went to look for something new. And in 1995, um, I, I learned um, about this, this trading card game called Magic the Gathering. They had just released a, a new set of cards uh, called uh, Ice Age, and I would start playing this game for 10 years straight. And contrary to Pokemon, um, Magic the Gathering was and, and still is played by pr primarily adults. Um, you need a big uh, balance sheet eventually to be successful at the game. And I quickly learned that adults are, of course, a lot more easier to monetize than, than school kids. And so being a very capitalist uh, card game, you need, you need a lot of cards to, to, to become successful in it. Um, as a teenager, I was trying to play the game competitively. And so I was competing with adults with those bigger balance sheets. And consequently, I really wanted to trade as many cards as possible to fund my own game. Now, this hobby became very much, you know, this sort of um, informal business. And I must trade 10,000 of, of, of cards uh, during a decade or so. And um, during that, that, that experience, I think unconsciously, um, I learned some really interesting business concepts. Um, one of them was obviously information symmetry. Um, because I had access to, to data, I was trading so actively, um, especially online, I knew better than anyone else what the cars were worth. Another, um, let's say, business um, concept that I learned was, was pricing arbitrage. For instance, the, the magic cars were a lot cheaper in the US. 
And so I was eventually buying them and reselling them in Europe, sometimes even making a profit um, because of foreign exchange. And there's obviously always my mother's credit card. Um, and for instance, also in terms of, of um, business models, um, back then something I, I found out was uh, dropshipping, um, which was essentially buying goods, in my case, and trading cards and shipping them directly to my end customer in Europe, pocketing again um, an additional margin on, on, the, on the shipping. That's amazing. Now, you know, even though you had that thing, had developed already that love early on for business, you went on and you studied marine geology. So why? Yeah, it wasn't an easy choice, Alejandro, because I, I remember being very jealous of my high school friends who they knew exactly what they wanted to study at uni. They knew they wanted to become a surgeon. They knew they wanted to become a biology teacher or, or, a, or a vet. And so myself, I had truly no clue. I had very diverse interests. And eventually, I ticked that box of, of, of geology on the enrollment form of, of Ghent University in Belgium. And people keep asking me, why did you study geology just like you just did? And, and so I, I felt back then somewhat attracted to this international career, exploring the world, the adventure of searching for, say, gold in some jungle, you know, Indiana Jones style, uh, the opposite of a desk job very much. And um, so, you know, you, you see people here making up all sorts of um, reasons why they take a certain path in life. And for me, it was really about the thrill, the adventure. That's it. And if something like the Teal Fellowship would have existed back then, I would definitely have ticked that box. Um, and probably as entrepreneurs, our career paths are a lot less um, linear. You have to figure out a lot of things in your life, your business as an entrepreneur, and you need to find pretty much your own product market fit. And I realized this um, when only much later, of course, um, after uh, you know having built businesses, but also the appeal of 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 um, of geology. I, I read this this uh, fantastic quote in a book called uh, um, "Madhouse at the End of the Earth." It's uh, it's an incredible account of um, um, the 19th century Belgian Antarctic expedition that speaks of the obvious dangers of such exploration, such as mutiny, a diet of raw uh, seal meat. And it's, it's a hell of a story. And, and the quote that caught my attention was of George Mallory, uh, the British uh, Everest explorer. And, and he said, uh, sometimes science is the excuse for exploration. I think it is rarely the reason. That's incredible. Now, you know, even, you know, with all this going on, you know, you ended up obviously getting the degrees and you ended up, you know, in the startup world, in the venture world, you know, with Rocket Internet, you know, and obviously that took you in different directions, you know, until, you know, what you're doing, you know, nowadays, but Rocket Internet, how does the opportunity come knocking? It was 2011. I, I had graduated with my uh, master's in, in marine geology. And I remember sitting down with someone really senior of a big oil company. And he was showing me uh, this chart with a typical career path of a geologist. And Alejandro, it, it was a beautiful chart. I can still see it in front of my eyes. Um, it set out how you could go from junior geologist to senior to a geology manager. Um, and then probably obtaining some, some sort of director position. But what I was much more intrigued about was the, the X-axis, which set out the time, which was extending up to 25 years, 
And then it hit me. I caramba. I'm not going to study um, dead animals and, and rocks for the next 25 years. Um, don't get me wrong. I have so much respect for, for scientists, first of all, and my, my university peers that have built up uh, f- fantastic careers in the field. But it was no longer that career path and an industry I was very much looking for. And instead, I, I learned about this rather controversial venture builder called Rocket Internet, the startup clone factory of the, the German Zammer brothers. And I was intrigued. They had built this eBay clone um, and they sold it back to eBay for 50 million in, in 100 days. I mean, this, this was exciting. And, and so I was, I was very much thinking this, this can be my MBA in entrepreneurship. And I saw an introduction to Rocket and um, following a 15 minute conversation, and I can't really call it an interview, especially because I still remember that the person on the other side of the line was slurping noodles uh, throughout the call. Um, I accepted an offer. I packed my bags and I pretty much lived out of a suitcase for the coming years. Um, first out of Sydney and then eventually out of Singapore. And um, we built e-commerce category leaders in emerging markets, um, including uh, Lazada in, in Southeast Asia. And so looking back on the experience, I think um, Europe would, would never have offered me uh, such personal growth opportunities. Um, back then, Europe and especially tech was a slacker. Um, Silicon Valley was obviously exciting, uh, perhaps China, um, but it was a much, much, much less accessible to me. And obviously, you know, for those that are listening, you know, that are interested to dive deep into the story of Lazada, we had Maximilian Bittner, you know, as well, you know, in the past uh, as a guest. But one thing that I want to ask you here, Fede, is, uh, you know, as part of seeing all these different businesses rolling out, those maybe like those replicas or those, uh, you know, uh, e-commerce uh, uh, businesses, what were some of the patterns that you saw that differentiated the ones that would eventually succeed from the ones that would eventually fail? I think market timing was was a very important one. Um, if, if I draw a page from, from the Lazada uh, success story, I think market we, we really got market timing right. Um, and I, I was actually discussing it with with a former uh, colleague not not too too long ago, and and he summarized it. We we just showed up that we showed up at the, at the right time. Um, we obviously had a capital advantage, having raised a lot more venture capital than than local players. But we also really got um, market timing right. And so in in Southeast Asia specifically, um, you have to think that. Thanks to the introduction of cheap Android uh, smartphones, the, this nascent consumer base uh, could adopt mobile commerce a lot more rapidly, and so eventually that market leapfrogged from, um, you know, largely offline commerce to mobile commerce, skipping all the legacy in between that, for instance, we have in the West, and this ma- this 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 led to incredible growth rates, which were um, not not possible in in more uh, developed markets, and so. You had to show up with the right team at the right time, and I think uh, that that is that is uh, what what we managed uh, successfully to do. And um, I think other businesses that that Rocket started, um, perhaps in other markets, um, took a lot longer to to obtain that product market fit. I'm, I'm thinking about you know Jumia or, or Lino. Um, that those markets were were just moving much slower than than uh, than we had in, in Southeast Asia. Um, but still, I think in many ways, Rocket, you know, generate this 
this mafia, right, of or this network of of entrepreneurs, um, and I think that that is something they really, uh, you know, create, and and we can be thankful for. I don't think creating this network was necessarily the purpose of the Zamlers, but they ex- accidentally end up with one of the biggest startup mafias. Hey guys, this episode is brought to you by .tech Domains. I mean, I can tell you one thing, and that is that as a founder, you're always thinking about branding. Now, one thing that is very important in that, you know, is that you need traction, you need to grow, you need to succeed. And having a name that is recognizable on a really amazing domain is the way to go. So that is why it's very important to establish the online presence with a clear and distinguishable identity. And you can do that with .tech tech domains. So doc tech domains are the go-to namespace to build anything in tech. They have actually helped many brands in the industry to make a name for themselves, just like onex.tech with their advanced Androids designed to replicate human movements and behaviors. So really, really, really cool stuff and cutting edge. And again, thousands of companies like this, you know, are also taking advantage of dot tech domains. So uh, also remember that dot tech domains can do the same, you know, for your company. They're also providing a great offer to every single one of you in the deal makers audience. Is one year domain for ten dollars and a five year domain for fifty dollars. So head now to the special URL, which is go dot tech slash deal makers, and that is again go dot tech forward slash deal makers. So go get your own domain. I mean, I got to tell you, I've had so many people uh, on the show that they are now building unbelievable companies that also, you know, all of them came out of rocket. So I totally agree with you. It's just unbelievable the 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 universe of founders that they, you know, have come out of that. So so yeah, you're absolutely right. Now, in your case, moving to London, you know, and 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 obviously, you know, branching out of La Sala, moving, you know, to London. And really, you know, that will lead you to Novicap. You know, how was that the transition? You know, at what point do you realize, hey, I think that, you know, I, I'm kind of like ready to, 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 for change? It's a great question. I'm, and I'm one of the rare entrepreneurs who resisted for almost three years at Rocket. Uh, not many did. Um, but I really started to feel the itch um, to package all those learnings and leverage them uh, to build my own business uh, from scratch um, outside that rocket internet um, umbrella. And um, eventually, I think being a successful entrepreneur is about the ability to attract resources. And I felt that I could now finally attract the necessary resources like the financial capital, the, the human capital that you need to, you know, the team you have to build and, and, and venture out of Lazada to start my own business. And naturally, and, you know, Alejandro, you've spoken with many entrepreneurs here on the podcast, um, you, and so this will resonate with you. The best way to build a business is to start with a problem and then build a solution around it. And the opposite way is, is, is very hard. And so one of the problems I had witnessed at at Lazada is some of the struggles those small businesses go through when it comes to managing, financing their working capital. We were providing the platform to sell um, goods online in the Southeast Asian market. Um, Nonetheless, long payment terms, for instance, on on the supplier and the merchant side led to problems for them. And so when I decided to 
to, to leave us out, I want to really address those struggles that those small businesses go through with a um, B2B working capital fintech um, with the goal to provide end-to-end working capital solutions to SMEs, mid-market corporates, and public administrations. And that became very much NoviCap. So I guess, uh, just for the people that are listening, you know, to really get it, what ended up being there, the business model? How do you guys make money? As I mentioned, we, we want to be end-to-end when it comes to working capital management and financing, which means that we have a number of credit products, which are obviously um, fully digital. These products are not necessarily new, so they focus on receivables finance, payables finance, and working capital loans. These are products that the banks have, have been providing to their customers for many years. Nonetheless, um, what, what we've seen is that, especially in the SME, the SMB segment, the unit economics are very difficult for banks to get right. The cost-income ratio there typically uh, does, doesn't work. And as such, better technology can, can, can help to provide those, those products in a, in a profitable way. And now we have a number of payments products, which very much help the CFO to optimize their working capital in a holistic way. And the way we make money is, is at a very you know, 50,000 foot level um, is, is twofold. One, we have an interest margin on our cost of capital. And B, we have a subscription revenue for, for, for our platform. And now, in terms of the early days, you know, for this and dealing with regulatory restrictions, how did you guys go about it? That, that is where, for instance, also Europe is, is more complex than the U.S. market. So Europe is a patchwork of different regulations. And depending on the sort of, of um, payment uh, product or lending products you develop, you uh, have to comply with different regulations. We were lucky enough that um, we came out of a accelerator program with Barclays Bank in London. And so they managed to provide us some of the early um, payments and um, e-money um, infrastructure that we needed for instance, to safeguard client money. And so that was a very important first step. So we, we, we operate and we still operate under their uh, umbrella for certain parts of the business. And then, yes, in in uh, in the continent, markets like like Holland and Spain are unregulated when it comes to, for instance, receivables finance. And as such, we we did not need to prove, um, apply for license there. Nonetheless, one area where we've invested a lot is to ensure we have the same compliance standards, such as banks. Um, and I would even say, in many cases, better when it comes to KYC, as so a know your customer anti money laundering. These are the areas also where, again, a lot of the margin for banks evaporates because they're doing those things in, in a more pedestrian way. And we've been throwing a lot of great technology at, at that. Now, what about the capital raising side of things? You know, because a company like this is, is capital intensive too. So how much capital have you guys raised to date? Yeah, I'll split my answer in two parts. One is the corporate equity is very much the equity uh, raised uh, at the NoviCap level uh, to pay salaries, um, make make investments in technology and, and so on. And then indeed, given we have a number of credit products on our platform, we also need to raise debt-like instruments uh, to, to fuel those, those products. So on the equity side, um, and here I think we've been a little bit of an outlier, um, thanks to smart pricing, uh, strong execution, very strong financial discipline, 
we only raised $3 million in equity. Uh, we broke even very early in the journey and continued that profitable path since. Um, so that's been a little bit peculiar during a few years, uh, especially during you know the last uh, year's uh, tech bull market. But it's a very strong position to be in uh, today. Then on the side of the platform funding, as I would call it, uh, there we work with a number of institutional investors to uh, fund those credit products. So these are mostly pension funds, insurers, uh, credit funds, with which we uh, typically sign long-term agreements, which goes back obviously to our asset liability management. We cannot just provide funding to our clients if we don't have the, the, the funding in place. And so typically there we sign uh, what we call forward flow agreements on a multi-year basis with certain eligibility criteria. So we know very well what sort of assets we can originate, what sort of receivables or payables we, we can find. Now, in, in that case, I mean, how is different, you know, how, how, when, when you go about raising it, like process, methodology, psychology, how is it different, you know, from one end to the other, you know, when you're thinking about, you know, getting that capital in place? Yeah. On, on, the, on the equity side, that, that's where you will, you know, in our case, we targeted French capitalists. We raised $3 million, uh, led led by Partech Ventures here in Europe. And that, that's a very different animal than what I would call uh, credit investors. So it's a different due diligence. It's a different. Um, obviously, both both investors care about the the asset performance and and the business and the IP you build up, but they're looking for different um, uh, di- different things. So venture capitalists, as we know, are are looking for that you know 10x, 100x return on on a technology investment, and so there the 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 IP you build up, the growth rates and so on are are, are obviously clear uh, clear drivers. Um, for a investor that is funding or platform, um, and for instance, to just give an example, Fasnara Capital, which which we have uh, transacted um, more than a billion uh, with to date, and um, we closed a 200 million forward flow agreement uh, last year in Q4. They they've been working with us since 2017, so we, we they're definitely satisfied with the track record they have with us. And so they will be monitoring, especially the, the, the performance of, of the book of the portfolio that you originate. So think about loss rates, think about um, how do you collect, but also what is your reporting like? And I see a lot of, especially early um, fintech lenders, they very often have difficulty to ensure that the reporting standards um, are, are um, in line with, with what a, a credit funder is, is, is seeking for. So Fede, imagine you were to go to sleep tonight. And you wake up in a world where the vision of Novicup is fully realized. What does that world look like? I, I love this question. Um, I, I, I will be waking up to a world in which CFOs hand Novicap the keys to their business. Let us manage their working capital in a holistic and automated way. This means Novicap dynamically optimizing your existing and Novicap credit products, optimizing your receivables and payables, your DSO, your DPO, and where needed injecting uh, much needed working capital. And so this will have a very strong impact naturally on those businesses, um, but also public administrations and all their stakeholders. Now, when it comes to, um, you know, also executing on that vision, you know, you need people. So I know that, you know, you're there, you know, in Europe 
And, uh, you know, in Europe, it's obviously a different, uh, I think that things are changing, you know, a lot. Uh, but uh, when it comes to talent, you know, it's a, uh, it's tough. You know, I think that the culture, the mindset is changing, but how do you go about to surrounding yourself by the right people and getting the right people, you know, to, to be a little bit more okay, you know, with not going to a big corporation and to going more to like, uh, you know, a company that is, that is starting out. I, I think that this has indeed changed a lot, as, as you already uh, hinted at. When 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 I started, I still remember that that there was a lot of pushback and and the successful career path, just like I've seen a little bit uh, growing up um, in Belgium, but also, for instance, in markets like Spain, where we have offices and 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 the Netherlands. Um, I, I would think a lot of parents would want their children to go into a big corporate or into a, a law firm. And so that was that was definitely different um, um, when, when I started and, and restarted hiring in, in 2015. Um, so that's that's a positive. I think people are really starting to see technology and especially startups as as a real career path. I also think that this is somewhat cyclical. We we may now also see a m- moment where, for instance, think about I don't know MBA graduates. Um, they may go back more to more secure um, employers uh, like like corporates because eventually there's less startup funding, there's less VC funding, and as such, uh, it's deemed more risky. And um, so there's definitely there a, a an effect at play which is related to to, to markets and and just you know where where people are able to find jobs. Um, for me, I I obviously recognize the the the. The importance of surrounding yourself with the best people possible at any given stage um, to to build a business uh, like Novicap and, and many others I've seen. What I would say is that placing yourself um, in a great hub and, and for instance, for we we like Barcelona for that reason. Um, it's it's a great hub to attract talent, uh, especially on the product and, and on the tech side. We have so many nationalities here at Novicap. And we see that um, being based in one of those tech hubs is still something which people really appreciate, even post-pandemic, even in the in the remote uh, remote work uh, world. Now, obviously, we're talking about here, you know, where things are heading, uh, also towards the future. But I'd like to ask you, you know, uh, about the past, but doing it with a lens of reflection, you know, because you've been involved too with so many different companies as well, and and you've seen different business models, different things that have uh, taken off, different things that didn't. So if I was to put you into a time machine, Fede, and I bring you back in time, I bring you back in time to that moment where, you know, you were now joining Rocket Internet, you know, or you were being part of La Sala and you were seeing all these different friends of yours going at it on their own, starting their own companies. And those were the moments where you were starting to incubate the thought of doing something of your own one day. If you could go back in time and have a chat with that younger self and give that younger Federico one piece of advice before launching a business, what would that be and why, given what you know now? I think w- one thing which which we got really right um, in Southeast Asia, as I mentioned, was market market timing. That is something which I didn't get so so right when it comes to Novicap. Um, so start the business very much at the height um, of the ECB's uh, quantitative easing program. There was a lot of liquidity in the market, so from that perspective, in many ways, 
we were swimming against the tides for quite a few years um, because there was a lot of credit in the market. Banks were passing it on in, in a very efficient way. And so as such, that credit gap, when it comes to the demand no, for, for alternative finance, for, for fintech lending, was, um, was a, lot, a lot smaller than I initially expected. And I, I was doing this, obviously, because I thought there was an opportunity. And, and uh, funnily enough, when I was speaking with you know, a lot of consultants, like you know, from, from uh, I won't name them, but uh, many, many big brands, firms out there, everyone was telling me the same. Yeah, you, you, you should go to Spain. You should, you should start a business there in SME lending. Um, the market is deprived of, 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 of credit, um, and there's just a great, great need for that. Um, and so I, I should have challenged it a lot more and and um, trying to to also obtain feedback from on the ground um, non-bank lenders um, because I think the data was was very different in, in reality. I hear you. So, Fede, for the people that are listening that would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so? Either um, a warm introduction or uh, through LinkedIn with a personalized uh, note that always is also a great a great avenue. Is enough. Well, hey, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Thank you, Alejandro, for having me. It was great fun. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.